Welcome to this episode of the Tools, Talents, and Techniques podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Sutton. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Mr. Ed Mwakadi, the founder and CEO of Red Swan Marketplace. Ed is a, is a visionary. He's an entrepreneur. He's been a capital markets executive. And through his current venture, he is revolutionizing the world of commercial real estate through some very innovative solutions. As the founder and CEO of Red Swan CRE, Ed has pioneered digital marketplace for quality, tokenized commercial real estate, and we dive in deep into what that actually means for the uninformed listeners. And Red Swan CRE, it's a, it's a new capital market solution. It includes liquidity, affordability, and the inclusion of cryptocurrency payment options. And by bridging the gap between traditional real estate and digital securities, Red Swan offers a new source of funding and early liquidity for accredited investors. With a strong background in sales and transaction negotiation, Ed has executed nearly $3 billion in transactions through his office career. And his specialties have encompassed negotiations, contract execution, debt structuring, asset valuations, urban development, feasibility analysis, real estate portfolio consultation, asset liquidity resolution management, and leadership specifically in commercial real estate blockchain tokenization. Prior to founding Red Swan, Ed served as the executive director of apartment brokerage and advisory services for Cushman and Wakefield, where he honed his expertise for over 15 years. And he also brings a wealth of experience from his tenure at Colliers and other notable organizations. And we go into some more of his history and his upbringing and how he developed his mindset. Edward holds a degree from the University of Michigan, and he's also earned a, a fintech certification from the Wharton School of Business, and he really demonstrates his commitment to staying at the forefront of industry advancements. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ed and Wackety as much as, as I did, because uh, we're going to be exploring the world of tokenized commercial real estate, capital markets, but more of like how to think through the decisions in your life and your career. So thank you again for joining us, and I hope you enjoy. Ed, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Dustin, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I will have, the listeners will have already heard a brief intro about you and your history and what you're doing now, but could you please give our, our listeners a quick recap on, on who you are? Sure. I'm Ed Inwakati. I'm the founder and CEO of Red Swan CRE. Uh, we are a blockchain marketplace of digital assets and real estate assets. Uh, we use the blockchain to convert real estate equity into shares, security token shares, uh, which allows people to buy fractional shares of real estate at a more affordable price and also uh, provide the liquidity. So when they want to sell it, they can also obtain liquidity by selling those shares. So um, we started this in 2018. We saw the demand of digital moving in. The government, the U.S. government, uh, made a mandate that uh, ICOs, which are initial coin offerings, were banned in the United States. But they put a blessing on uh, digital securities as being a method for raising capital. So I quickly uh, jumped into this type of the business knowing how effective it was going to be for commercial real estate uh, because I had, you know, a 18 year career 
in commercial real estate capital markets selling uh, with Cushman and Wakefield as director of capital markets. And so when I jumped in this field, I had an idea that it was going to explode over a period of time. Being at the cutting edge of this, and before we go any further, let's do this. I imagine that you've had to explain what blockchain is many times to many people. Could you give a quick rundown of how you explain blockchain? Yeah, so blockchain is a digital ledger. Uh, you know, you, you use the internet to uh, to search uh, for content, hosting websites. It's just another layer, layer too, for having access to information. Uh, the blockchain is a uh, layer one, which allows you to store information on a ledger and keep track of the, um, the movement of that information. So, for example, when you're talking about shares, it's like a stock shares. I can transact something and it's recorded on the blockchain. It's immutable, meaning that no one can change that recording uh, until I release it. And then the person who I'm giving it to accepts it. So it's a very effective way and secure way of transferring information or products uh, onto a network uh, that is very secure and very transparent. Uh, so people uh, use the first use of blockchain that most know about is for cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies are digital uh, ownership of, uh, of currencies that you can now buy. Uh, and when you buy this, you're actually recording your ownership on the blockchain, and then you can privately store it in your own uh, self-custody wallet. Um, and then you can interchange that by selling it to somebody else peer-to-peer. -peer. So you don't need intermediaries in order to change exchange information or these currencies from peer-to-peer. We do the same thing on the blockchain, but because we're selling investment uh, vehicles, uh, it has to go through the SEC because we're selling securities uh, like stocks. And so in order to legitimize the transfer of a share of a stock of real estate, uh, you need to go through someone who's licensed in order to do so. And so we chose to get licensed to be able to transfer uh, shares of real estate stocks from one entity to another using the blockchain as our medium of storage. And I'm going to make one other thing, other, one other thing clear, which is a misunderstanding. Cryptocurrency, you hear about people having their currency or wallets hacked and they're losing their currency because someone stole it. Well, that's because it's peer-to-peer -peer and people can store their digital uh, currency assets in their own wallet. Or they can, they can store it with a third-party intermediary like FTX or Coinbase. Well, uh, because they're, not, they're, they're, they're registered, but they're not identified onto some sort of a ledger, that means that once it's in a, a wallet or capacity where it's sitting, if somebody can get access to that, they can just take it, just like you can take cash out of your wallet. But when you start looking at digital securities, the federal government made sure that they're handled a little bit differently. They're recorded onto a list that lets us know who owns it. And that list is like what we call a cap table list of all the owners. So when it records on that list, uh, there's an intermediary that can know that the person who owns it is the rightful owner. And so when they transfer to somebody else, it's also recorded on that same list. So if anybody stole the digital security tokens of real estate from your wallet, 
you can now come back to Red Swan, who made those tokens, and say, please burn my original tokens and reissue me, reissue tokens to me. So that's a big distinction between security tokens and cryptocurrency, which are both processed on the blockchain. Does that make sense? It, it, it does, as much as I can digest <laughs> that. And I, I'm, I'm sure, like, again, you went right into the deep end and... There are a lot of questions that I know, and I've talked to other people about blockchain, and I understand it to a point, but when I hear folks such as yourself get into the weeds of how it works and how it's secured, it, it makes sense, but but again, to me, only only to a certain level. My question for you is that, or I get my, my initial question here. You you were working at Cushman and Wakefield. You were in commercial real estate for a long time. When did you become aware of blockchain itself? And when did you make the decision of saying, oh, this can be used for real estate purposes? Can you walk me through that transition sure. or that mindset at the time? Yeah, it was uh, basically, it was January of 2018. And uh, I'm minding my own business, doing real estate transactions like I normally do. And one of my previous uh, officers of a previous technology company that I found co-founded in um, in 2000, actually in 1999, uh, called me and said, "Ed, uh, you ought to go to a blockchain conference. There's one in your backyard in Dallas." And I said, "His name is Ernest." I said, "Ernest, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know anything about blockchain." He says, "Trust me, Ed." I know you, uh, it's a new technology, you're gonna love it, go check it out. I said, Ernest, I'm extremely busy, I don't have time for any technology. This guy is a, is a computer geek, so he loves technology. And I don't care, for, I mean, I'm not that much in love with it. I, I like you know business and profits. But he said, you need to go, you're gonna like it. And because you know, I trust, I value his opinion, and I've worked with him for a long time, he knows me, I trust his opinion to go on a plane and check out a blockchain conference. And the first thing I saw were people who invested in cryptocurrencies and were you know, doing extremely well. They had millions of dollars because they invested in cryptocurrencies and a lot of those currencies have, have done well. But I wasn't so much uh, enamored by cryptocurrency as I was uh, to understand what blockchain actually does as a product. Uh, and so I went to the exhibit part of the, of the conference, you know, where they have all the exhibitors and the exhibitors are now displaying how they're using blockchain to do different things, whether it be holding cryptocurrency in a wallet or using blockchain to transfer things onto the blockchain and store them on the blockchain. And so I realized that blockchain allows you to take any asset, any physical asset, and replicate it into ownership onto um, the blockchain, just like you would license real estate, register it with the city and say, I can prove I own my real estate because I go to city and it's licensed under the city with that track of land, for example. Well, the blockchain will, as long as you can identify that the, that the value, verify, you can verify that that real estate is owned by X party, then you can take that same verification and put it on the blockchain and, and put it digitized. So now the ownership is no longer uh, on the in the city's archives is now replaced on the blockchain as being certified ownership of an asset. So that's really the fundamental reason of blockchain is to verify that the asset exists, put a number on it, digitize that number, and now it exists on the blockchain. 
But the beautiful part about that is that you can now fractionalize that ownership into as many pieces as you want. So I can take a piece of land that I saw registered in the city of Houston as being owning to XYZ Corporation. And because I have the certified copy of the deed, I can take that same deed and transfer it to the blockchain if I'm the owner of it. And then I can fractionalize that deed into a million shares. So a million shares make up the full ownership of that land. And now I'm able to take those million shares and sell them off or distribute them to people uh, piece by piece, whether it be 10 shares or half a million shares or 20,000 shares. I can sell all of them or some of them, but I'm basically now fractionalizing the ownership into segment to uh, fractional shares. So this was, this was a January. You go to this conference, you see the technology. Do you see the problem? Like what was the journey from that moment? And you saying, Oh, this is, this is something I want to go into. What was that process like from there to starting Ritzwan? Sure. Two things. One, right away when I saw uh, people using the blockchain technology for different things, like I, I saw somebody who was doing timeshares, you know, how you timeshare hotels and real estate. Mm -hmm. and they were putting those timeshares on the blockchain and selling them off in, in, say, in fractional shares. That was very, you know, conceptual to me. I can understand that because we can all understand what a timeshare is. But when you take timeshares and you fractional them into smaller pieces, I said, wow, the, since I'm in capital markets, that was my main business. It clicked. If I can fractionalize the ownership of something, I don't I no longer have to sell it to one person. I can now sell it to multiple people. And I thought, wow, that's going to be fantastic for my business in capital markets, because if I'm selling real estate, I don't have to use one buyer. I can bring a thousand buyers to sell that real estate. And it's much cheaper for them to come in and buy. So if I'm advertising to you, Dustin, that you can buy a piece of this office building for $10,000 and you're going to have a you know, one-tenth of ownership of that office building, for example, and it's going to pay you one-tenth of the dividend that comes out, you're more apt to say yes to that than if I were to try to sell that to you for $500,000, right? So uh, right away, it clicked to me that this is going to, this is going to dramatically uh, change the way real estate is done if I incorporate this, and that's what got me interested. And then two months later, the SEC uh, regulated that security tokens are licensed, that is, they're, they're legal in order to use security mm. tokens to fractionalize ownership. So that told me the government was moving in this direction as well. And so it, it, after that, I realized this is something I need to jump into because I felt that it was going to be an emerging technology and an emerging process for selling real estate. And I wanted to be on the forefront of that as opposed to being on the back end of it. Uh, I came in on the back end of commercial real estate because I had no choice. But I was definitely going to be on the front end of this because I saw it happening and I figured all I have to do is stick with it. And so that was one of the main reasons why I went to my boss and handed my resignation in and said, I'm going to go work for a startup company selling blockchain shares. They thought I had gone crazy. They thought they called my <laughs> wife had an accident or bumped my head. And I said, uh, no, I want to start this company. And they said, how are you going to give up? you know, a seven you know, figure income to go do a startup uh, that no one's ever heard of selling what they call Bitcoin. That's what they call it. So you're selling Bitcoin. I said, no, I think I'm doing the right thing. And I just, uh, you know, I had confidence and it was going to be okay. Uh, also, you know, I was looking for a new, a new change in the industry. You know, you, when you're in the business for 
16, 17 years doing the same thing, uh, no matter how much you make, you want excitement with your job. You want something that's going to mm. wake you up passion every day and not just making money, but something that you feel like you're, you're driving the ship on. And so that was the change for me was I had enough cushion to take off for a year or two without having any income and be able to develop this baby into something. And that's what we did. And so now, you know, fast forward five years later, uh, it's the, uh, is the secret sauce that uh, all the institutions are jumping into because they see technology and digital assets being much more uh, accessible, much more efficient, uh, much faster, much trans- more transparent. And so everything that, we're, that we work with today is going digital. Even the dollar itself will be a digital dollar. I guarantee within the next five years, you won't be pulling mm. dollars out of your wallet. It'll be credit card, digital dollars being floated around the world. So um, I figured oh, that, hey, that's already happening. I see some places are cashless and, you know, how that breaks down. I, I see it. I understand that. That's it. So it's cashless and it'll be a, a dollar back currency that they guarantee, just like you see uh, with on your credit card. You're really using plastic or credit. But when you talk about coins, they're stable coins now that represent a dollar, meaning that if I have the stable coin, it's guaranteed that the reserve uh, of a dollar is there for me if I want to trade it in. And so the more people who buy that is because these are people who want to use the digital infrastructure to buy and sell services with that digital dollar that they can't use with a credit card or with a paper dollar. So I want to, I want to put a pin in that for a second, because you, you touched on a, a couple big items that I would love to hear you expand on. And one of them was you talked about going in and handing in your resignation and having the confidence that you were going to do this. You were going to take that leap. Is there any point in your life or your, your childhood or your upbringing that you can point to or where you started to develop that, that tool, that, um, a mindset. That yeah. Well, I've always been entrepreneurial. My family uh, comes from Nigeria, and most of them are entrepreneurs from start. I mean, they didn't have education. They learned how to be traders. So they are, you know, buying and selling product, uh, you know, by importing and selling. Uh, so I always had that, you know, entrepreneurial spirit in my blood. Uh, but I was young. I was a paper boy. I realized, you know, how to monopolize, you know, uh, income by taking one route, uh, one street, and then, you know, talking to the kids who own the next street next to me and buying them out <laughs> and taking over their route, <laughs> buying the next one. Cause I realized how, how, how old were you at this point? I think I was, I started when I was 10, I was 12 when I started really to start acquiring more routes. And so I, <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, if I had four paper route, I had four routes. So rather than have one wagon, I would uh, go and fill up. I would have four, but I would hire kids to pull the wagons for me and pretty much deliver all the papers. And then I would just go collect all the money. So that was <laughs> a way of doing business. And I realized that, uh, you know, you can't make a lot of money if you only use yourself and your two hands. You have to leverage other people. And so that's always stuck with me. Um, yeah. So even in, in the commercial real estate business, I didn't come in as an employee. I came in as, an, as a business entity. And so every check I made went to my corporation. And so that gave me confidence to just make as many checks as possible uh, and that's an industry where it's pretty much dominated by uh, the winners. Uh, it's hard to get into commercial real estate and do big volume because com- the clients go to the people they know 
and they consistently rotate the business with those people they know. But I realized that when you have information, you can now use that information as leverage and get yourself in the door uh, and make things happen. And so you have information on the property that's for sale or a person, you know, they want to sell it because you heard something, you read something, or you just know that they're patterned and you know that there's a buyer who's looking for something just like that. Make it happen. Go to the buyer and say, hey, would you like to buy that building? He's, yeah, but it's not for sale. Don't worry. Let me have your LOI. I'll make it happen. And that's kind of how I you know, beat the drum in commercial real estate uh, to be very successful by making my own business as opposed to waiting for people to give me business to sell. So from, from your, from your paper route though, from, or your <laughs> paper, paper route dynasty that you built. So from there, you, did you know what you wanted to do in college when you were, when you went to, you went to Michigan, right? I went to Michigan, but no, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I was going to probably be in business. Um, didn't know what kind of business. When I went to Michigan, I studied accounting. I hated, I hated accounting, but my father forced me to be a professional. He said, you're going to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or accountant. Otherwise, you're a bum, and no bums allowed in our house. Wow. So I chose accounting because it was the least amount of education necessary to be a professional. But lo and behold, it was actually the secret to business because accounting lets you know how to you know, understand how businesses are operating by just looking at the financial statements. So that was a tool that I learned early on of how to analyze businesses to know how they're making money. And so once you learn how business makes money, then you know the goal for business is raising revenue, minimizing expenses, and increasing your bottom line. So that stuck with me in terms of how to manage business going forward. How, how long were you into college when you had that realization, when you were like, oh, actually, I'm glad I'm doing this? Or, or did you at all? At that um, time, it didn't hit me when I was in college, but I had op entrepreneurial opportunities in college as well. You know, you're, <laughs> you're a starving student. You had to figure out ways to make money. Uh, and it, it, I remember uh, starting off as a freshman, you know, you had work study and usually get a work study job where you can make a little extra money. Well, I had three work study jobs uh, and, you know, somehow I was able to manage that to make three times as much money uh, on the side of study to buy a car. And then, you know, you have side jobs, art festivals come in town. I'd buy Mylar balloons wholesale, buy the, the helium tank and fill them up and sell Mylar balloons at all the major festivals. And, you know, you make money. So that was kind of way you hustled in college. So you'd be, so I always wanted to have a bank account. And then from the bank account, I now looked at what can I use my capital with? And I bought a vending machine route, you know, when you sell cigarettes and sodas and candy in different locations. And so... That was an investment that uh, gave me a lot of coins <laughs> to go cash <laughs> into dollars. But, you know, I just had all these kind of, you know, uh, I'd say uh, independent businesses just to keep making money um, because I never liked to borrow money from my parents or ask money from parents. I always wanted to figure out a way to do it myself. Uh, even after the paper route story I told you about uh, as a child, I got into mini bikes and uh, I wasn't allowed to have a mini bike, but I bought one. I used to hide it down the street. Uh, in a garage and ride it. But after a while, I realized the kids wanted more mini bikes. So I started buying engines and buying frames. And my friend and I would just make mini bikes. We'd build them and sell them. So that was another way of making business when I was probably 16, 17 years old. But, you know, hustling. What can I say? That's just you grow up hustling. Yeah. You realize that you can make, you know, honest, legitimate money. And it just stuck with me until after I graduated my father said, well, you, you got to go work for a CPA firm because you're not going to be a bum. 
So I worked for Arthur Young and Company uh, for about a year and a half, and I hated that job. I mean, I, I just didn't like, uh, you know, just sitting in room adding with adding machines. And, you know, I looked around, everybody's wearing hard, thick glasses. I said, this is not for me at all. I told my mother, I'm going to quit. And she says, you can't quit. Your father be so disappointed. I said, I'm quitting, mom. I'm going to do something else. What are you going to do? I don't know, but I'm not going to do this. And I quit and I moved to California, just packed up everything mm. and just drove to California. And I, you say, why California? Well, I said, I wanted to get away from Detroit, my hometown. And California, San Francisco was in a book I read of the top 50 cities, had the highest income, had the best weather, had the best education and the best medical system. Right. And so <laughs> that's where I wanted to be. It was either going to be San Francisco or New York. So I went to San Francisco and uh, just started hustling, started working in the stock exchange to learn how people made and lost millions of dollars a day. And that was exciting. And then I was able to get a job with GE Credit as a financial analyst. And that was like my first professional job where I get to fly what, around and audit. What, you, what, what, you, what year was this? So I can get a better picture. Uh, this was uh, 1983. Okay, um, okay. And I don't know I where you read that. I don't know where you read that San Francisco has the best best weather, but that that one was true. Everything else is sounds about right. San Francisco's day, coming from Detroit, Michigan. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Weather, it had the most sunny days per year. That was considered the best weather. And when you're in Detroit, you don't have that many sunny days. It's really most gray days. So mm. I wanted sunshine and blue water and blue skies. So it was not necessarily having the warmest weather, but just sunny days out of the year is what drove me there. Plus the highest, second highest income in the country was in San Francisco. And I figured if I can make it in San Francisco with the second highest income, that I can make it anywhere in the country. So that's mm. why I was there. Um, and then, you know, just, again, continued to move up. I worked for GE Credit, and we flew around as analysts. In, I was analyzing companies so that our company would give them a loan, an asset-based loan. And when I realized our company made $140 million in a matter of a year, and it was only 140 uh, people in our company. That's roughly a million dollars per person was made uh, in terms of net NOI. I started to see, huh, if they just took 10% of that income and divided it amongst the 140 people that made it, we'd all be worth over, you know, three, $400,000. So I went to my boss and said, I think I should get a raise, right? I was, I was in my 20, about 24 years old. He's like, are you crazy? I said, no, I think we should get a raise. I think that they made $140 million dollars. We should get a bigger, bigger piece of that, or at least a bonus. He said, that's not going to work. He said, you stick around, you'll be a supervisor, you'll make really good money. I quit the next day. Wow. And I went and took a bunch of forms from the supply room and said, I'm going to be an asset-based lender because I learned how they did it. And so I can do the exact same thing. And if I can make a fraction, just 1% or half a percent, 50 basis points of what they make, I'd still be good uh, in terms of my lifestyle. So I quit. And I, did, I started a business in my apartment and I started to invite clients who needed money. I, I, I bought a book on, on uh, how, to, um, how to sell money, how to be a money broker. And so it taught me that you had to write business plans for people and then present their cases to different institutions. And that's what I started doing. And believe it or not, uh, in one summer, I made $90,000 writing business wow. plans and presenting their business plans to Bank of America and different places. And I never really got a client any money except for one. I got one client money from B of A. And when it's time to get my check, they told me I had to have a license to do this business. And because I didn't have a license, they didn't pay me my commission. So 
I got a license, but then by that time I had enough money saved up and I saw a business for sale, which is a body shop business. And I decided I want to go after and buy that body shop business. And that was my first acquisition uh, at 25 years old. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. This entrepreneur, this entrepreneurial spirit that you have and that you see this up and what that you said, Hey, this is what I think. This is what I see. This is what it should be. And they said, no, nah, I don't think so. And you were like, yeah, nope, then I'm, then I'm out of here. That, that is, that is so amazing to hear. And then you made it happen. Then you went out and, and you're doing your thing. So you also mentioned that it was, you were on the tail end of getting into commercial real estate. So was this, was this, when did you first become aware of commercial real estate as an industry in itself? Uh when I was when I bought that first business, the body shop business in 1985, um, I became an expert in that industry. I I, I kept the original owner um, with me for transitional purposes for six months and paid him a salary uh, as a consultant. I learned the business really well, and then I started to buy more businesses. So I wound up in four or five years. I had seven shops in the Bay Area, body shops, and I had uh, roughly 52 employees, and so. Uh, all the shops I bought, I made sure I bought the real estate along with the business. So that was my first entry really into buying commercial real estate. And I did it just to supply, support the businesses that I was running. But it turned out that I was able to sell the businesses and keep the real estate. And that created a lot of value for me. And then when I finally sold the real estate, I was able to 1031 when I moved to Texas and had a pretty good nest egg just from selling off the businesses and selling off the real estate. When you went into this, um, the body shop and, and by, and buying that, had you had any previous experience or, or in doing your accounting for other things and valuing through your experience with, with accounting and doing all those things, you did have an idea basically of how real estate functioned in some regard, correct? No, I didn't. I didn't. I had None. no idea how commercial real estate functioned. Matter of fact, I didn't look at that as commercial real estate. I just looked at buying the shop with the real estate. And hmm. I was, it was ignorant that I was actually bought. The guy sold both. He would have told me I'd have bought the business and rented. I'd have bought the business and rented. But he just said, I'm going to get out. You can have the real estate and the business. I said, okay. So I just had that as debt to pay him was for both assets, the real estate and the business. It wasn't late until later on I realized the value of the real estate asset separate from the business. Um, but the body shop business was a great business to be in. Because it was all ca- a lot of all cash and you know and also insurance money, so I was able to get really high profit margins on all the deals I repaired. And I didn't know anything about that business. He taught me within six months how to run that business. I just love cars. I'm a fanatic about cars, so I figured, you know, I, I love the product. I'll learn the business. And he taught me the business through the transition period, how to write estimates, and I realized how to make your profit through accounting to write estimates. And that, that was the end of the story. And so I started acquiring body shops by going to other property owners or body shop owners like I did him and said, look, I have a company I'm with that wants to expand and looking to buy your shop. Usually they were mom and pop. They said, sure, I'm ready to sell. That's how I was able to acquire all these different companies. You mentioned a couple of times about how you've learned and how you became an expert in certain certain fields and certain businesses. Do you have a process of how you learn? Is there some like a way that you approach something and how you like to, I guess, ingest or digest information? 
Um, I think the counting background kind of gives you the 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 scorecard, right? You by your profitability is your score. If you're not profitable, then you're not doing a very good job. Uh, so understanding the business is just understanding how does the business work. Well, in the body shop business, you got to bring cars in. You have to do an estimate that, that has a profit built into it. Then you have to manage the process to make sure that people who are doing the repairs, because I didn't know how to do any of the repairs, that they do it correctly and that you can make a pro- pay them and you can make a profit. So knowing that process, it was just like getting that down cold. So I knew how to handle one shop. Uh, but then, you know, I'm not doing the work. So I have free time to go find other shops and more shops. And I'm just managing people and managing that process. And when you, he didn't have a computer system. And the guy did everything in his head. I, the first thing I did was get rid of all the garbage and put in computers. So now I can manage the process of every job cost as repair cost for everything like an accountant. And I can see if these guys aren't doing their job because they're blowing my profit, I either get rid of them or tell them they need to do a better job. But it makes it much easier to see what's going on in your business when you have accounting background and you have software that shows you the ups and downs of the, of the, of the transactions. Sure. I, I think I think what my, my my question, the meta question here is when you're trying to learn about something, are you more do you, how do you do do you look for experts? Do you read? Do you, you know, tap people on the shoulder and ask them for advice or suggestions? What what's your method of learning anything? Whether it's whether it's a emerging technology, whether it's a body shop, well what is is there something that you go to as a process? I believe that I go to people who know how to do it and I mm. learn from them. So body shop, I didn't know how it was done, but the previous owner kind of introduced me to the body technicians and I learned how they're, I watched, see how they're doing it, but not to know physically how they do it each one, but the time it takes for them to think, do things and the process to do it. And so after a while, you kind of understand what they're doing and then you can leverage that. Uh, in real estate. I didn't know commercial real estate when I got into it either. I was I came to Texas to buy more body shops. I was I sold out my body shops. I was coming here to probably buy. I was talking to like some of the car dealers to buy their body shop from them because I knew that business. And I had hired broker dealers to show me around town and what's for sale, what business is for sale. I had money I was going to buy. They said, you know what? You seem to know how to read. Boy, you know how to read these balance sheets really well. You ought to come work with us. And I said, no, I'm not really interested in working for anybody. I'm trying to buy another company. He said, well, if you work for us, you see all the companies coming on the market and you can either sell it and make money or you can buy it and make money. I said, you know what? That's not a bad opportunity. So I joined <laughs> this broker company and I started to go after the companies that I would normally buy, but I would just make them sign a listing agreement and I would turn around and sell it for them. So I learned how to do business brokerage. And then, you know, just a year into that business, I brought like $26 million of listings to that company. And the owner was so scared that a black man brought so much business institutional besides business to his company that he was nervous that I was going to make him, you know, break his insurance or whatever. Uh, And so he told me, you don't need to be here. You need to be at a big commercial real estate company. I said, well, who are they? And he says, you don't know who they are? I said, no. He tears the book a list in Houston and says, here's the top 50 real estate companies. You need to go work for them. So I tore it in half to the top 25. And I went knocking on doors to Cushman Wakefield, CBRE, and said, hey, you know, here's my resume, what I did with this guy at the, at the uh, business brokerage company. I brought him $26 million of listings. 
And he tells me I should come work for you guys. And they looked at me like I was like from another planet. I'll never forget that. Cushman Wayfield looked at me like, huh, you did this? They didn't believe it, right? So they said, well, we're going to find somebody who can work with you, and then we can bring you back in. But we like what you've done. So I moved on to Collier's, and the, the CEO of Collier said, you know what? I like your smile. I like your attitude. You could come here work tomorrow, right? And so that was my first experience doing commercial real estate. And, you know, the way I figured it is that these guys are all experienced on selling office buildings and selling apartment buildings or whatever. I know body shop business and industrial buildings because I own some. Let me focus on that market and go after that business for listings, right? And <laughs> I was hustling on the phone, getting new listings. And right behind me happened to be the partner who runs the multifamily division. So she's hearing me on the phone, talking to people, getting listings. She says, I've never seen anybody work so damn hard. He says, you're selling yourself and you're trying to get this bills. You're hustling. You're here every day. How about you work with me as a partner in multifamily? And I said, nah, I'm not interested in multifamily. I don't even know what multifamily is, so I'm not interested. Thank you very much. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm you know, making some money. I'm, I'm happy. Two days later, the CEO of the company comes by and says, you know, Teresa asked you to be a partner and you turned her down. I said, she was trying to get me to sell some multifamily. I didn't know what that is. She says, first of all, do you know who Teresa is? I said, no. She says, she's one of the big breadwinners in the company, right? She's a partner. And she said, I still don't know anything about multifamily. She said, you ought to go talk to her because she was going to give you half of her earnings to be a partner, 50-50. I said, oh, she didn't explain it like that. <laughs> so I I went back to her and we worked a deal. I said, look, I'll partner with you, but only if I can take my share out of everything above what you used to make, right? So if you made a million dollars a year, if you make a million two, I'm getting my share off the other the additional 200,000. She immediately agreed to that and we became partners. And soon enough, you know, that's how I learned my, my way around multifamily. That's an amazing story. Can you, can you walk me through the mindset of, of, of going back to her with saying, no, I want everything just, you know, above, um, out of, out of that pot. Well, yeah, I think that in all fairness, I'm the new kid on the block. I don't know anything about what she's doing. I know she makes a lot of money at it. Teach me what you're doing. So I understand it and I'll be good at it. That's, that was the mindset rather than mm -hmm. me trying to take your salary and you feeling like you're on top of me because I'm taking away your income. Uh, I know you keep your income, show me how to do it and I'll triple your income. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what happened. Within two years, we were top producers of the whole firm in two years. That offer to her, that gesture was more of saying, I, I don't, I don't want to be there. I want to be part of the upside. So you don't feel that's interesting. I love I that. Equal. I want to be an equal partner, but you're already bringing this to the table. So my share has to bring more than that to the table. Otherwise, I'm not helping you. Right. So every incremental dollar you make above what your average is, now my split comes in. And so she immediately agreed to that. Yeah. And uh, I thought I was being fair because I really wanted to learn the business. I mean, again, you have to learn from the best uh, how they do it. And once I learned from the best of how to do it, I became the breadwinner and I'll beat her and then moved to Christian Wakefield and became the executive director for multifamily. When you went to, and so then from that, from then on out, you were only multifamily for correct. the most part. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And you were in the multifamily space for, was it 16 years? 17. 17. Sorry. Let me take a, take a year off that. So in that, in that time that you were experiencing, was there anything that, that you saw in the industry that 
and I, I want to preface this by saying this leads into my question about the blockchain and about you seeing this opportunity. Were there moments along the way where you were like, this could be done better or this could be done faster or more efficient? Was there anything like that in your in your mindset that you were seeing along that path? Yeah, just like in the body shop business, the guy didn't have a computer. He was putting everything in his head and he had to memorize all the parts he had around his shop. And when I threw away all those parts, he thought I was crazy, but I brought in a computer so the computer can tell me what's going on and manage the flow of inventory, which is a much more efficient way of doing business. Well, in the body shop, or in the multifamily business, she was a prima donna. She made good money because she was very tenacious about the clients she served, but she wasn't very good at going out and hunting for the business. You know, business hmm. came to her before reputation. I was good about hunting for, so I, that's why I did was bringing the hunt to the business and I would chase down owners I knew were going to be selling and let her bring her along to the meetings. We close those and that's how we increase our business volume. Well, so I just helped her increase her business volume. But but even at the time when you were in, when you went to Cushman and Wakefield and you're doing this work, were there certain things? I know you mentioned the computerization. There, there, were there a lot of things as the technology advanced that you were bringing into the business of, uh, of saying like, oh, we could use this to make things better or we could do this? Because from my perspective, it is a very antiquated um, system, commercial real estate, just as a, as a, culture, if you will. Um, but were there any things like that that you saw or tried to implement? Yeah, it wasn't technology, believe it or not, until later on, we started looking at technology that was influencing the business, but just the business practice in general. Commercial real estate is a white glove, you know, various elite group of people doing the business. 80% of the business is done by 20% of the people in the industry, right? So they always keep getting more business or and it just rotates from one company to the next. And so when I came in, <laughs> it, they just used to skip over me in a rotation for some reason, right? I wasn't part of the clique. I wasn't part of the network. For some reason, I looked different. So when it came for those assignments for the selling these apartments for these institutions, they would somehow always seem to say, I'll get you next year. This guy old. I know this guy owed that guy. And so you know what? It realized that I'm not going to sit around and wait for people to give me business. I need to go out and find a business myself. And that's when I started doing off-market transactions. That's when I started putting two and two together with information and making my own luck, as opposed to them bringing me business. And that changed everything for me in terms of business model. So my business was forced to change because they weren't giving me any business. So I had to think about how to create my own business. And I was very successful. I'll give you an example. I, would, I came to, this is one of my largest transactions. I came to an owner and said, I used to go to China and because I knew that they had a lot of money. They wanted to buy a lot of U.S. assets. And since I'm one of the only few people who want to go to China and speak their language, I learned how to speak management so I can deal with them. Uh, I come back and I have letters of intent on certain properties. And usually I go for bigger properties. I brought an offer for, uh, to, a pro for, to our owner and said, hey, my client wants to buy your property. I knew you were going to be selling because I know your timeline. And they says, nah, that's not enough. Not enough at all. And I said, are you kidding me? I'm offering you a ridiculous amount for these four properties. Yeah. Um, CBRE is going to take care of that for me. We already have it. They're, they're going to bring more, a bigger offer than that. And I was like, okay, well, I know what's going on here. Uh, but, you know, luck, you know, luck has it that uh, two months later, I got a phone call from one of the Cushman Wayfield advisors. And it was telling me that, that uh, they were analyzing a company, institutional company that owned assets in Houston. 
And he said, do you know some of the price points in Houston, and especially in this area? I said, yeah, I actually took an offer for, you know, a pool of assets. It turned out that that company's, those are the assets that company owned, right? And when I told him that I brought an offer for about a half a billion dollars, the guy said, wait a minute, you bought an offer for half a billion dollars for these assets? I said, yeah. He went and called his client, told his client what happened. His client flew to Houston from, from, from uh, Germany that next week and then met me, took me to see his, his sponsor that he was, he was investing in and said, how come you guys never showed us this offer? They were expecting to make 200 and something million dollars from this to sell the portfolio for $275 million. And here I'm bringing a $470 million offer. Well, <laughs> lo and behold, we got the deal done, right? Yeah. Um, and that just goes to show you the kind of industry we're in. But that also shows you how I did business. That being able to do that and being a hunter and being out there and, and being resourceful, going to China, learning the language. You and you mentioned before about when you turned in your letter of resignation, people were like, oh, are you crazy? Because it sounds like you're just killing it. Right. And and I, it doesn't just sound like it. I know you I know you were. And you're doing this and you're, you're going along and you're rising, 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 making a lot of money, doing great. What you saw in blockchain technology and, and also the your your want to do something different and, and, and go out there and, and do that. It must have been a pretty palpable feeling for you to to do that to to jump to the the blockchain. Well, you know, it's like fortunes come around once in a lifetime, where you can see mm. clearly where things are going that no one else sees. You know, and you know you can sit in your desk and you continue to make the same thing you're making, and actually maybe making less because more competition keeps coming in. So you're fighting for your, your current uh, earnings. And this was a chance to really get ahead of all that. Right. And, and be able to be on that top of the wave like we are right now. And so it wasn't that, even though it was a risk, it was not a big risk. I always knew that if I put my mind towards something, I'm going to get there, I'll be a player and I'll make, I'll make some way to eat, some way to earn money. And so that's why I decided to jump out and do this because I felt that it was a, it was just a new frontier. It's like the internet starting for the very first time and people were trying to contemplate, do I need the internet or not, right? And you knew good and well, the internet's good for you. And now 60% of all retail sales are done online, right? So it was that kind of uh, you know vision that I saw with blockchain was the same thing you saw people see with the internet when it started way back when. When you're, when you're explaining that, because you're, you're ahead of the curve, you know, you talk top of that wave, and you're doing this and not, not even just now, but I'm talking about six years ago, five years ago. How, how challenging has it been to try to get people that are so used to that industry and how it works and to explain to people why this is the, the wave of the future and why this is where they should be focusing their attention? You know, if you read between the lines, media tells you stories to manipulate your mind. And people are just, you know, easily gullible into, you know, believing things without doing much research. But if you can see what's really happening, the financial model is changing. Banks have failed. They're going to continue to fail. You know, interest rates, you know, the cap, the country's borrowing a lot of money. I mean, we're in a different scenario than we've ever been in, in the world. And so you got to figure 
cryptocurrency is actually something that cannot be manipulated. I mean, when you talk about Bitcoin, you can't manufacture more of it. So it, that's why people are buying it, because they know this is something that really can't be manipulated by government. And so when you start looking at how things are moving in that direction, everything is going digital. Well, just like I said, the Internet is all moving towards efficiency and faster transactions and more access to things. You got to change. I mean, otherwise you're going like I told the student from, uh, you know, graduate school in, in the university studying real estate. I said, they're teaching you old technology. They're teaching you how to do analysis with, you know, Excel. They're teaching you, you know, fundamentals of real estate. We're way out. We're way ahead of that. I mean, that what you're learning, you'll never use ever. Right. So you might as well start looking at where things are going rather than where things have been. And I think that's where that just separates, you know, the, the, the men from the boys and the, and the women from the girls is that you focus on where the puck is going, not where mm. it's been. Right. And so I'm focusing on where the puck is going, knowing good and well that digital is better than non-digital. Look, look at the TV. Look at what we're talking about right now. We're online talking to each other on Zoom or whatever is digital. <laughs> yeah. This is not going away, is it? This is significantly better. I, I hope not. I hope not. Because being able to have these conversations and connect and get this information, it's all it's all useful for me. And I know it's useful for our listeners. So to be able to do this. So yeah, to, to that point, there's you know, there's not not the accounting pun, but there's pluses and minuses. There's deficit credits to everything. Like this there's a there's a downside to a lot of these things, but you're right. They're the things that once we cross this threshold with certain technologies, there's really no going back. I mean, if somebody offers you ownership in 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 um, Zoom, uh, would you buy right now? And knowing that you can buy a big chunk for a discounted price, would you say yes or would you say no? Mm, yeah. How about that? Yeah. I'm just saying, you know things are heading that direction. It's not going reverse. It's not like this is going to crash and be done with. It's a one-trick pony. This is the future. And so either you see the future or you don't see the future. And there are a lot of cracks in our in our ecosystem right now, in our infrastructure. And I'm, literally, they're cracks, but even cracks figuratively, they're cracks in meaning that that things are changing so fast that, that people haven't adjusted yet. And cryptocurrency and digital assets in real estate, things are changing so fast they haven't adjusted. But just what if Red Swan or other companies were able to digitize $10 trillion worth of real estate and convert it to digital shares? We now are the asset managers of $10 trillion worth of real estate that it could be going back and forth. That's value. Isn't that value? I mean, when you're an asset manager, it means you collect a little bit of everything that moves around. That's where things are going. That's where the stock market's going. That's where the bond market's going. And, so, and that's where all the major corporations, you see JP Morgan Chase going to digital technology, going to digital currency. They're getting ahead of the curve. When I know you also recently got, you did a course or a certificate program at Wharton School of Business for your fintech. I remember um, seeing that recently. Congratulations also on that. Um, well, thank was, was there Was there anything that you took from, from that course of what you're learning too? Because again, we're talking about skating to where the puck is going. And you're, you're, you're talking about a specific blockchain, cryptocurrency, tokenization. Was there anything else that you learned either in that course or elsewhere that you find is parallel or also useful that going forward in this industry? 
Well, I think it's useful that they covered the topics and they encouraged uh, the changes, but I didn't get a lot out of it. It, it just reinforced hmm. that I was, in, I was moving in the right direction, that I was in the okay. right uh, seat. But I could have taught that course, to be honest with you, because I'm already in it. I'm already creating it. I'm already issuing it. They're still talking hypothetical what can happen. They're, so they're not in it. They're just kind of, they're academics about it, right? Um, but it's good. I mean, I think people who took the course is learning the foundations of it. And so they're getting excited about it because they can see where it's going. And they now will start changing their lifestyle uh, around what they're seeing and what they think they can do in the future. So, yeah, I think it's useful, but it didn't benefit me personally that much. I mean, wow. I okay. if you get no, that, that, that's very interesting. It's very, but it makes sense too, because you're already swimming in it. <laughs> you're surfing on it. You're doing it. You're doing the work. That makes complete sense. Yeah. yeah my, 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 my next question, and I want to be respectful for your time. Uh, and I want to make sure, is there, is there anything else that you want to, want to share with the listeners with, you know, what you see coming or how they can get involved, what they, anything at all that you want to make sure that we leave our listeners with? Well, I think your listeners are looking for um, tools, talents, and techniques for career choices. And I think- Well, and uh, life, and life decisions in general. You know, uh, the the intern or the, I'm saying the student I I interviewed the other day, who's a graduate student in real estate, uh, was asking me, hey, when is the best time to jump out and start being an entrepreneur. I said, as soon as possible. And he just looked at me. And I said, he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm interning right now for a company. I said, well, you know what? You're interning for the best company, one of the best companies in the world. Doesn't matter they're only paying you peanuts. You're now learning exactly how they put the model together. Learn that as soon as possible. It could be six months. It could be a year. And then jump out and start being your own developer. Start making it happen yourself. And you can. You know why? Because now you know who to call on for this, you know, call on for the materials, how to, who to call on to buy the real estate, how to value the real estate, how to do the analysis. You know all the pieces of pie. Just go do it and just do it smaller and then grow. And he's like, wow, I never thought of it that way. I thought I needed to stay there for five or six years, learn more. No, five or six years, you're now taking on a bigger salary. You now took on more liabilities. You're now creating a family. You don't have the risk factor to be an entrepreneur because you've already embedded yourself into debt or into liability, and you're now scared to leave that. But if you right now as a student live with your mother, you can learn what you need to learn and get out there and start making something happen tomorrow. And if you're successful in a year or two, you've just catapulted your future 10 times over. Ed, thank you so much for sharing your insight on, on what you're doing and your, your career. I think the last thing that you just mentioned there is is really useful for, for everybody to hear Um, when it comes to making decisions about their life. And you, you, we talked about it quite a couple of times here about making those decisions and betting on yourself and, and moving forward. And I'm extremely impressed with, with what you've been able to accomplish, what you're doing, but more importantly, who you are and what the way I see you doing it. So congratulations. Um, thank you again for, for sharing this with us. And uh, I'm excited to, to see what's happening next and, and hopefully be a part of it in any way. Hey, well, thanks for interviewing me. I think it's always good to try to help, especially our young, um, to put them in the right frame of mind because life doesn't have to be complicated. 
you should be happy with what you're doing. I'm, I'm, I wake up excited about getting out there because the world is, I'm, I feel like I'm on top of it. I haven't, trust me, I haven't made any money. I don't pay myself a salary, but I, I look at my stock as being the value of my measurement as an, as an accountant, right? The value of Red Swan stock growing is where I'm at. I don't need to make any cash, right? That will come. And, and when you're having fun, it's so much easier. So I just tell people out there that you have skills. You're born with natural skills. Many people don't realize what their natural skills are because they don't allow themselves to test it, right? They always go for what people tell them is good for them and they settle for less. But your natural skills will come out when you're happy and you do things easy. That's what you should run the business around, what makes you happy. And then be successful at it and use technology to leverage that. That struck a chord with me because I feel like that's exactly what I'm doing with my company and and even with this podcast. I enjoy connecting with people. I enjoy learning, and I like this this whole experience has been fantastic. And you know, present company included. I, I really I really appreciate everything that you're doing. So thank you again. Anytime, Dustin. Let me know if Ed, I can come back. Ed, one more one more thing. I'm going to have your the the company website on the show notes for this, but is there anywhere else that our listeners can find you or online or elsewhere? Um, on LinkedIn. I mean, I'm very present on LinkedIn. Um, and then also my website, uh, redswan.io, um, to stay connected. I think that learning more about blockchain, whether it be real estate or anything else, um, by just being connected, you'll see what's going on. You'll see people who are interested. You see all the back and forth. I think that motivates you to do more. So maybe that's one way to spread the love is just by staying connected. Sounds good. Well, I'll make sure to include all that information. Thank you, Ed. All right, buddy. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Tools, Talents, and Techniques podcast. We hope you found the conversation insightful and engaging. And if you enjoyed this episode... We invite you to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your network. By subscribing, you'll never miss an episode as we continue to bring you inspiring discussions with industry leaders and pioneers. Stay connected to the latest insights, trends, and strategies across various fields from business and entrepreneurship to technology and innovation. Your support is vital in helping us reach more listeners and expand our community. So don't forget to leave a review and share your feedback. We appreciate your input and are committed to delivering valuable content that empowers and inspires. To stay updated on future episodes, be sure to follow us on either LinkedIn or our website, suttonrea.com. You can also find us on most podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. Thank you for being part of the Tools, Talents, and Techniques community. We look forward to bringing you more engaging conversations and valuable insights in the future. Until then, keep exploring, learning, and applying these tools, talents, and techniques to achieve your own success.